0: Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the AMR Studio. Today, we have an interview that Jenny did back in 28th of January with Mr. Michael Craig, one of the experts on AMR working at the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., the CDC. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome, everyone. Today we have a special guest working in the U.S. at the CDC, Mr. Michael Craig. Mr. Craig, could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Sure, and thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Michael Craig. I am the director of the Antibiotic Resistance Coordination and Strategy Unit at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to this role? So a little bit about your background and what kind of pushed you into AMR.
2: So right now in in my role, I'm an executive at CDC and I oversee all of the agency's work in the United States on antibiotic resistance. But going back a few years, I was working in Washington, D.C., and I was working in the policy area, Um, and I was still working for CDC then, but I was in a position where I sort of saw that there was some great interest in antibiotic resistance, especially on the drug development side, but there wasn't as much interest on the public health side at CDC. And, you know, that was a a time when I sort of saw that the agency needed to do more um, to talk about the the public health aspects of AR. And so, you know, I advocated within the agency for us to to come up with a, a report that talked about it and talked about the public health aspects of it. Um, And so in in 2013, CDC released its first ever antibiotic resistance threats report in the United States, and that was really a seminal publication for the agency and really for the U.S. government because it it sparked a tremendous amount of attention in the U.S. about the problem and because it was the first time the CDC had put out numbers of the total infections and total deaths in the U.S. related to all the different AR pathogens that are, are most significant in our country. And so because of that, the Obama administration paid a lot of attention to it, and they started uh, developing a national strategy and a national action plan for the United States. And so it sort of snowballed from there, and and, um, because of my role in, in spearheading that report, I was put in charge of overseeing the CDC's engagement on the action plan and the strategy. And then ultimately... We got some new resources from our our Congress to be able to support activities, and our whole portfolio grew, and they ultimately put me in charge of overseeing all of that work uh, to make sure that we were sort of moving forward in in the right direction. So I've been very fortunate, and I'll just note that all of that work was in coordination and is totally possible by the the folks who work at CDC. Just amazing experts. That's sort of a brief snippet of it.
1: <laughs> so a little bit of a group effort, but it sounds like you really played a huge role in the start and really kind of pushing it forward. So what was it that made you, I mean, you said you saw a need. Yeah. But what was it that really kind of brought that forward to you that you saw this? Was it a personal interest in the field or was it anything else? Like,
2: so I think what drove it to me was there was a real disconnect between what where we were sitting at, at CDC and the public health aspects of an infectious disease problem and what I was seeing the conversation about in the field. So the conversation in the field is often driven by we need new antibiotics. We need to develop new antibiotics. It's vitally important. And let me just say from the from the get-go, we agree we need new antibiotics. Yeah. But from the CDC perspective, prevention is most important, right? You don't need a new antibiotic if you don't get an infection in the first place. Absolutely. And that point of view wasn't really being talked about. And I I think it was really up on us. Like it was a failing of CDC at the time that we weren't effectively talking about prevention. We weren't talking about antibiotic resistant pathogens and, and the whole context of it in a way that policymakers could understand that you have to develop new antibiotics, but you also have to do all of these things on the prevention side. And so that was the disconnect I saw. And so that's why I was really advocating internally for us to do more and and I think folks you know continued to see it as well that you know we knew what we could do and we knew the role that public health could play but we weren't effectively communicating as best we could to talk about it and to engage people effectively
1: from what i understand being a bit having a more recent entrance into the field there was a time where the belief was basically the solution to everything is just new antibiotics new antibiotics and before the pipeline dried out absolutely and then It took a while, I think, for a lot of people to really realize how big of a problem there was, that it wasn't happening, that there weren't things going through.
2: Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, from the public health perspective, and of course, I'm very biased here, but I still think that much of the conversation is dominated by the pipeline and new antibiotics. And I'll just, you know, the thing that I always sort of note to people is that as a global society, we have been working for roughly 70 years to develop new antibiotics and that's been our main strategy and we need to diversify our strategy because for 70 years we developed new antibiotics resistance follows soon after and now it's quickening and quite frankly the pathogens are getting much more effective much more efficient at developing resistance than they did when we first started and so we have to diversify our strategies. We have to focus on prevention in a much more significant way than we ever have before.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we've kind of covered this now, but I wanted to ask if you could maybe introduce the CDC a bit. We have a relatively international audience. A lot of people maybe particularly now recognize the concept of a CDC <laughs> with the pandemic and right. everything and ECDC in Europe. But uh, could you talk for just a little bit about what the CDC's role in the U.S. is and uh, purpose?
2: So the CDC is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it is the leading public health agency in the United States. And it works to protect Americans and others, uh, especially globally, because we work both domestically and globally, from threats. And those could be infectious disease threats like antibiotic resistance. They could be chronic disease threats. They could be injury threats. They could be you know security threats. But we work 24/7 in a lot of different areas to be able to protect uh, the United States as well as help other countries around the world to address these threats, however they, they might come. And so I've been with the agency for, I think this is starting my 19th year, but you know I will just say it's a, it's a wonderful place. To work. And I'm very fortunate in my career that I started with CDC and that I've been able to work there for so long because it really is a, a place where you have world's leading experts on anything. I mean, you, you could take the most obscure disease and there are people at our agency who know the fine detail of a pathogen you've never heard of and you certainly don't ever want. And and I'll just say it's, it's so incredibly comforting to know those people know all that they do, because, you know, those threats are real, those threats are are things that affect people around the world. And that knowledge and that information and that science can be applied to, to help people live healthier, safer, better lives.
1: Yeah, I think the role of uh, any public health agency in a country, but especially in larger countries like the US, the CDC and the ECDC has really been emphasized in their current climate right now. But I mean, I think People haven't really, I mean, unless if you work in this, in a healthcare field, considered how much this plays a role or how much has been done kind of behind the scenes to help improve people's health, to help prevent diseases, both infectious, and non-infectious. I mean, it's, it's a large space to cover. And I mean, now people just think it's, you know, epidemiologists, people get a skewed view maybe of what the CDC is in the current climate, but it, it's very diverse, I'm assuming.
2: Absolutely. It's incredibly diverse in terms of the level of expertise. Like I said, we have science experts, we have policy experts, communications experts. And, you know, I think when public health is is at its best, you don't notice it. Yeah. And that's sometimes the thing, right? You know, if everything is going right and we're, we're doing everything as effectively as we can, we're often in the background and we're preventing things that, you know, people wouldn't even know. And and, yeah. and the benefit and that impact is often unseen. And so it's also that, you know, that contribution as a society or within a country is often unrecognized. And and I think that, you know, that's a shame. And I think we, we have to do better to make people understand. Because remember, at the heart of it, we are trying to help people live better, healthier, longer lives. And we're trying to do that in a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, just like people trust their doctor to help them improve their health, the public health parallel is pretty similar, except that we're not looking at the health of one individual at a time. We're looking at the health of a community or a state or a country or the globe.
1: Yeah.
2: But we're trying to effectively do the same thing as, as your local doctor.
1: And it must be a bit difficult too. I mean, you say this parallel to local doctor, your your standard GP. I mean, most people have a, a strong relationship. They they rely on their they trust their doctor right. or they would right. change their doctor often. Right. It's maybe hard for people to feel the same trust in a in an institution rather than a person that they can see and talk to. Well yeah, I'm assuming everybody, or at least the vast majority of people working at that institution really do burn for, you know, improving people's lives and helping people. Absolutely. But it's it must be hard to kind of have the same passion, but maybe not have the same connection with people. You can't be in, be there for them in the same way. And it's hard to maybe always explain right. what you're trying to do. Or like you say, if everything is going well, then maybe they don't even notice you. So it's hard to even say we succeeded.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I think you're, you're getting at the heart of the matter, because I think that that is right, where people, you know, sometimes have, of course, greater distrust for an institution than an individual that they've developed a rapport and a relationship with um, and who they've probably worked with for many years. But I will tell you, you know, that's why I go back to the, the people working at CDC, that dedication and that you know, heart of service and that you know, desire to help people live those lives, it is incredibly strong and it, it's sort of within the culture of, of CDC and i see that in those people and 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 you're right it's hard to translate what you know i see every day or what others see every day into the same level of trust for the agency but i think that's what we have to get better at and we have to try yeah better communicate what we do we need to have some of those people be better spokespersons um, and out there so that they can be sort of a face for that and and understand that. And it's it's difficult. I don't want to in any way say that it's it's easy task, but but at the heart of it, you know, we are trying to do um, the same thing that, you know, the local doctor is trying to do. We're just trying to do it at the national level or the community level.
1: And this ties in well when you're talking about AMRs. I like the parallel in of, you know, when you're thinking about antimicrobial resistance, you often have to think beyond an individual patient to the whole population to the whole future populations. And it can be a lot of difficult balances. So it's perfect for an organization like the CDC, of course, to work with these sorts of things that are more bigger picture. So what are the CDC's current strategies, future strategies? I mean, I've seen your website, there's tons of information there. So I can absolutely say, if anybody wants more information, go to the website. But uh, do you have any things you want to highlight of maybe what the CDC has been working with in the field?
2: Yeah. And I think it touches on some of the things I alluded to earlier, but I think the thing that I would note to you is ultimately our goal is to reduce the number of infections and the number of deaths and the number of negative consequences related to antibiotic resistant pathogens. Um, and to do that in the United States, as well as to do that globally. And so from our perspective, it's always prevention first, right? So, so we need to prevent the infections. If you prevent an infection, you don't have to use an antibiotic in the first place. Um, and you, you don't have to worry about uh, unintended consequences for that person. Even if they survive, they can have lifetime negative consequences from an infection, especially if they develop sepsis or other conditions. And so we always want to start with that. The best infection is none at all. Um, And so to that extent, you know, we want to see how we can accelerate the things that we know that work. How can we bring new prevention tools forward? And I think a couple of things that I would flag for you that I think are, are sort of more fine priorities right now I think you probably saw last week, there was a very seminal paper that was released in Lancet about the global burden of AR infections. And it it highlighted that the number of infections related to AR pathogens in the world exceeds HIV, it exceeds malaria. And I don't think people really recognized that or had a sense that that burden was so large. So, That global burden is one that we are doing more in. In December, we actually launched two new networks uh, to help support other countries to address global threats, notably our global AR Lab and Response Network, which has been to date working domestically, has been um, extended to some global sites to help try and do pilot work to help other countries. It's, It's a small start, but it's a start that we think could grow into something more significant, and it's something that we have in our own action plan about how we can help support and address some of these challenges globally. And and again, through the lens of how do we prevent these infections? How do we know where these infections are happening in a country? How do we uh, identify how to prevent them in a healthcare setting, in a hospital? How do we identify how to improve them in the food or water supply? How do we identify where they might be happening because of environmental issues? And then how do we develop an intervention to stop that to reduce that burden and to protect all of the humans who might be exposed to it
1: yeah and it is i mean of course it's a could be a goal of the cdc to improve the health of everyone cuz that tends to benefit but especially in amr of course it's something without borders we see this with a lot of communicable diseases of course that right they don't care about borders obviously right. but, but can maybe sometimes be hard to explain i guess why it's so beneficial for an organization like the CDC, which is in essence a national organization, to really put a lot of effort globally, I guess. I'm assuming this is part of the the difficulty sometimes to explain to somebody outside of the field why, why is this the most important thing we can maybe do is to help others. Yeah. Aside from the purely ethical helping others part of it.
2: <laughs> right. How does it connect to their own community? Yeah. Um, I think that that's... I think it is a, a challenge at times. I think the pandemic is is probably our best example that people can readily understand. Yeah, now it's easier. <laughs> and, and and you know, I think it sort of exemplifies that. But it's it is very true. And and the thing that I like to tell people is even if we did things perfectly in the United States, and we are far from doing things perfectly in the United States on on AR we would still have a problem of antibiotic resistance because of the global challenges that we face. And and we're a global community where we have the global movement of people, animals, foods, there is just such great interconnectedness. And with that interconnectedness come these opportunities for pathogens to travel, for reservoirs to develop in places that are unexpected and for there to be such a tremendous global movement of infectious disease threats that we have to have that. And I think also
1: you mentioned this uh, huge paper that recently came out saying a lot of data about, you know, number of cases and who's affected and what area calculated back, basically. It became very clear that the problem is different in different parts of the world. Right. And one size fits all doesn't really work. So it's the kind of thing of like, you have to kind of help other people. You can't just say, you know, we did this, go do it." it. It doesn't work everywhere. And it's very dependent on... What is the high high risk pathogen in the area? What's the issue here? On top of that, what's the healthcare setting? What's the? I mean, there's so many levels of it. It must be very hard to find a very efficient way of providing help, providing assistance. I'm assuming.
2: It is. Uh, it is daunting. <laughs> and, I mean, I think, and you know, your podcast is emblematic of this. You've done you know dozens of episodes that talk about the dimensions of antibiotic resistance. Right? It's not one thing. It's Yeah complicated and 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 i think that's the thing that i think people always underestimate about the challenges in the field is that it's not one pathogen right it's not just hiv and how do we get people onto hiv retroviral treatment how do we prevent hiv it has so many different dimensions and it crosses so many different industries so there's the healthcare portion how do you address infection control how do you do Good antibiotic prescribing in your healthcare network? How do you make sure care is delivered safely and effectively and accessibly? Um, then there's the food aspects of it. We also have sexual transmission for things like drug resistant gonorrhea. And increasingly, we're identifying, especially in different parts of the world, the environmental
1: components.
2: Yeah. As to clean water, uh, sewage all of those things can further magnify antibiotic resistance and you're absolutely right we can't take a one size fits all approach and we can't just as you know from the us perspective say well this worked in our country you can go do it there we have to work with the researchers the public health officials in those countries identify what's happening in their countries we we have expertise that we can share but we have to take the approach of you know we need to know what's happening locally so that we can identify and respond to it appropriately and not just assume it's the same thing that we're dealing. with. It does absolutely vary from country to country.
1: To turn it around a little bit, even within the U.S., from the national perspective, the U.S. is so large and diverse. And I'm obviously comparing to EU mainly, which is some people compare the two, but they are very different, especially in administrative everything. But I mean, even if you look at the EU, there's a massive difference between different parts of Europe what what's the problem how big is the problem from what i know the us has similar but it might be more within different populations you know there might be higher at risk populations it's got to be a struggle there too you know how do we reach these people how do we reach these people you know it's it's a massive country <laughs> there's a lot of different things going on even if it's all one country yes i'm assuming there's a it's a, a challenge
2: right and and i'll say you know we all, we have 50 states we have other territories and, and you're right, the, the problem of antibiotic resistance is not, you know, monolithic across the United States. There are different problems in different communities. And we have tried to be, you know, flexible and make sure that we support our local states and our local communities in a way where they can address the problem themselves. But you're absolutely right, is that we need to get better at identifying health disparities, we know that antibiotic resistance, like many infectious diseases, can disproportionately affect different populations. The challenge, of course, there is that you know, a healthcare disparity might be very different than a food disparity might be very different than an STD disparity. So we have to sort of define the different disparities for the different threats that we face, and then figure out how do we best address those communities. We see also a tremendous division between urban and rural populations, um, and their level of access to healthcare, and then their level of uh, you know, quality of care, their antibiotic prescribing can vary very significantly. So there's a lot of different disparities. There's a lot of different things that we need to get a better sense of. And, and how do we improve upon serving those communities that are hardest hit?
1: Turning back a bit to global approaches. So when I was looking through your website, I noticed something that stuck out a bit to me uh, the Transatlantic Task Force for antibiotic resistance, I think. TAPFAR, yep. I, I kind of liked that that phrase. It stuck out a bit to me. But I mean, obviously, you have a lot of global collaborations as, as a national public health organization. But so what exactly is this task force? What's their purpose and their goals?
2: So so TAPFAR is a collaboration. I think it, it dates to uh, 2009. And it was sort of a joint venture between the United States and the EU to address antibiotic resistance and to more closely bring collaboration among our academics and our public health agencies together so that we can share our knowledge with each other, share what's working in our different countries, as you said you know, the EU and the United States do have a lot of similarities in terms of they have very large, diverse populations. They have sort of different communities and, you know, antibiotic resistance affects those communities in different ways. And so this was sort of an opportunity to work together and learn from each other. And I think it's been a tremendous success in terms of what it set out to accomplish um, because it's looked at different focal areas, like how does the US FDA Food and Drug Administration, look at the approval of antibiotics or new interventions? How does the companion uh, organization, the EMA in the EU, do the same thing? What are the, the standards they have, the rules they have? Are there ways that we can actually make it easier for antibiotics to come to market? It's also looked at things like the, the public health agencies, so the ECDC and the U.S. CDC, mm-hmm. that I work for, collaborating on well, what are the, the most effective ways to identify pathogens in healthcare settings? And how do you measure those things? And are we measuring them the same way? So when we talk about the numbers that we have in the US, are those actually comparable to what's the what are the numbers that are happening in the EU? And talking about the different approaches and the, the benefits and challenges of doing it in different ways. So it's been, a, you know, an opportunity for us to learn from each other and grow and bring countries together, I think, in ways that we, we hadn't been able to accomplish before. And I'll just add that it's also grown. So it was originally more the, the U.S. and the EU collaborating together. Now we have uh, Canada participating, Norway is participating, the U.K. is participating. And, and so we have sort of a, a whole constellation of other countries that are contributing in, in different ways.
1: And this is an ongoing collaboration from what yes, I understand. It's, it's still right. progressing.
2: It's still moving yeah. forward. So they have five-year plans, and we actually mm-hmm. just released a new five-year plan for TAPFAR that sets out sort of new areas of exploration. For example, uh, we're looking more at the environmental aspects of antibiotic resistance and how different countries and different parts of the world are looking at those threats and how they're measuring it, how they might be responding to it. We're also looking at things like mathematical modeling for antibiotic resistance. So that's a tool that we can use to help sort of predict what some of the numbers are if we can't count them as easily or how we can predict um, what the impact of an intervention might be. Um, So if we, say, have a, a vaccine for antibiotic resistance, mathematical modeling could potentially help give us a sense of how effective and how successful that vaccine could be in different populations.
1: And that ties in a little bit what you said from how the kind of the origins or from the beginning, the early years in this this collaboration, if I understand right, getting everybody kind of speaking the same language. This number means this. This is the, like, that's got to be a major starting point to these kinds of collaborations on this level. It's just, let's find a baseline that we all agree on what is what, and then we can work together. A big effort, number one, to agree on those sorts of things, but also just, you kind of have to go back a step to set up this and then agree on a way to move forward, if I understand right.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it it really depends upon the topic and what are the different points of view and how do you bring them to the table you know a lot of the early efforts were folks i think who had been already working together some but i think as we've grown that helps <laughs> the, right it's extended more into groups that are you know not as familiar with each other and are working to do new things and learn from each other and i think we, another new area um, of collaboration is actually in communications which is i think an underappreciated form because it, again you know like with your podcast it's ultimately an educational vehicle for people to learn about some of the challenges that we face but you know if the general public like we talked about before doesn't understand antibiotic resistant doesn't understand the potential threat it poses to themselves or to their family then it's going to be hard for them to understand how they can protect themselves and their family it's going to be hard for them to understand what's the best course of action especially when public health officials start, you know, making recommendations to them of things that they can do to protect themselves and their family. And so, you know, communicating about it better, helping people sort of understand what it means and how important it is, is something that everybody has to do, right? It doesn't matter, you're, yeah. you're going to have to be able to do it. So what are the best practices for that? And of course, you know, how you communicate is going to vary by country. But I think a lot of the problems are very similar and how we can learn from each other and learn from our successes and failures i think is is really ultimately what what tapfar aims to do in terms of improving that collaboration
1: yeah i mean personally from 2015 2016 i think it's one of the things that i that struck me i mean i am obviously interested in communicating about this problem otherwise i wouldn't be doing this, but there's been a papers coming out and publications about you know how do we talk about this? What's a pitfall that we should avoid? Uh, right. What kind of language should we use? What should we avoid? I mean, it feels like it's really been evolving with the time, not only about antibiotic resistance. Obviously, there are other global issues like climate change and whatnot, and, and that have similar challenges in how to talk about it, how to get people on your side instead of feeling just scared and terrified all the time, while still understanding the severity And but feeling you know empowerment instead, it's it's a challenge and it's uh interesting to see more like you said globally, it can be difficult because we communicate a little differently in different countries, different things work in different places, but we can help each other, we can you know discuss what what's some common strategies and whatnot. So it's it's interesting to hear that as like a progressing moving forward.
2: And and I gotta say, it's it's so important because I think the thing that we have to remember. And I think there's this bias and a challenge that a lot of scientists have to overcome is that scientists understand their science and they often understand what other scientists are doing, but they need to understand that if you want people to actually change their behavior, which is what a lot of science and a lot of public health is ultimately about is identifying what is the healthier route to do something. You're not going to do that by just publishing in a journal. And I think a lot of scientists think, oh, well, I published my paper in a prestigious journal and it showed this, so everybody should do it now, right? Yeah. But that's not how the world works. And we have to have, I, I mean, I sometimes think about it like, you know, science is sort of our overall brain and our thinking about things, but our communications and our policy and all those other things that are complements to the science are our, you know, our voice, There are arms, they're the things of how we actually affect that change and how we bring that science to actually bear on society. But we're very poor at communication, then ultimately we're going to fail.
1: Unfortunately, I have to start wrapping up the interview a little bit. I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's really worked in this field, really pushed for it and has a broad perspective of it, what do you personally think is missing in AMR research or in AMR work in general?
2: So great question. And I think the things that I go back to again are the, the the public health pieces, the prevention pieces. So the things that we think are vitally important, and also just to be clear here is that you know CDC has funded over about $220 million in innovation work over the past five or six years. And so this is an area very near and dear to our heart. It's something that I get excited about when when our uh, scientists come to us and talk about projects they have, but I'll highlight two areas that I think are vitally important. One is moving more to support AR vaccines. So you know, vaccination, as I think the pandemic has shown, can be one of the most effective tools that we we can have to reduce the number of infections, reduce hospitalizations, reduce deaths, and that's true for antibiotic-resistant pathogens as well. We have a great example of this for pneumococcus um, and Mm -hmm. pneumococcus. That that vaccine has had a tremendous impact at reducing the number of infections and deaths um, from pneumococcus in the United States as well as globally. And the thing that I would also add is that vaccines that address AR pathogens are sort of doubly potent because the other thing that they do is they reduce antibiotic use. And I don't think we talk about this enough or appreciate it enough because if you reduce the number of infections, if you reduce those hospitalizations, fewer antibiotics are going to be used. And that means you're going to prolong the life of those antibiotics as well. So it's an incredibly potent tool that quite frankly, I want to hear us you know, over the next few years talking about the antibiotic drug pipeline, but I'd love to hear us also talking about what is the AR vaccine pipeline as well. Absolutely. The the second area I'd highlight are decolonizing agents. Uh, So this is sort of maybe a newer area, but I think it holds a tremendous amount of promise. So a lot of pathogens, especially AR pathogens, can live in our skin or in our gut, And they're colonizing there. They're not causing an infection, but they're present. And they have the opportunity to uh, turn into an infection, especially if you're getting a surgery or you become immune compromised in some way. And they can also transmit to others. And so we've identified this, especially in the United States and some of our healthcare settings. And what we would like to do is to be able to, to bring new therapeutics to market that aren't antibiotics because you don't have an infection, but there's something that will get rid of that colonization. And if we can get rid of that colonization, then that person who's receiving that decolonizing therapeutic is not going to potentially get sick. And they're not going to transmit that person maybe to the healthcare environment or to a member of their family or onto someone else maybe in the healthcare field. And it's going to reduce the overall transmission of some of those pathogens. And we think it holds tremendous promise because then you don't have to use antibiotics and you can reduce some of the overall movement of those pathogens in ways that we've never been able to do before. And so those are two areas that I think we're very keen on furthering the science on, furthering the investment on, and that we think are, are going to be vitally important in our ongoing and future fight against AR.
1: And like you said, those both kind of tie into the whole an infection prevented is an infection that you don't need That's to right. treat, that you don't need to use antibiotics, everything like that. Think about when you talk about the decolonizing agents, there is a struggle there from what I understand with getting these kinds of drugs, these kinds of a- agents approved because it it requires a bit of new flexibility, a little bit of change in how we approve drugs, what we compare to, what tests we use and whatnot. That's right. It, it's really comprehensive changes that might need to be done. It's the kind of thing of like the AMR problem doesn't really fit in the frame of how we treat infections in general. And antivirulence treatments and I guess anti-colonization drugs in the same way, they probably have the same struggle of it's a great thing, but how can we prove that it's working right? How can we really get it past these trials and everything like that? Um, Right.
2: That's absolutely right. This is something that we've put in our U.S. National Action Plan to try and do more. And and we actually do have ongoing conversations between the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration in the United States who who does approve these agents. And you're absolutely right. They fall into a a weird gap, right, because they're not an antibiotic. um, They provide some risk reduction and benefit to the patient, but they also provide a risk benefit and risk reduction to the community. And that could be the, the hospital, the nursing home, the, uh, you know, the critical care unit. Yeah. So there's a, a double benefit there.
1: But that's the part that's hard to measure, right? Right. Like the, right. the community part the, or like counting in not needing to use antibiotics part, because these things are often counted for the patient's benefit, which is right. great. I mean, they're, they're well mean. I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with right. it, but it's the, the stringency of it kind of reduces the good for everyone if you're trying to get these other sorts of drugs
2: approved. Yeah. And I think we have to have a broader perspective, especially when there's opportunity for these things to do a tremendous amount of good. And I think that that measurement is hard. But I will note a lot of the public health research that we do, where we're looking at communities and impacts, that's exactly how we measure things. And so that's why it's really important to us. And I think we're showing the FDA and talking to the FDA, this is possible. Like You can measure this community benefit as well as the individual benefit. And then how can FDA sort of consider, well, what do you do with that? And a lot of these agents work in different ways on different parts of the body. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of science that needs to be done. But I think it's a conversation that we need to move forward and we need to accelerate. And so that's one area uh, as well that I think we're excited about. There's a lot to be done, but, you know, I think it, it shows a tremendous amount of promise.
1: Yeah, it's great to hear that there's this conversation ongoing between the organizations about, you know, really adjusting for the changing needs, basically. I think that's sure. great to hear. Yeah. With that, I'd like to say thank you very much for participating here, for, for coming to talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to ask at the end if there's anything in particular you'd want to say to our audience as a last
2: note, as a sign-off. <laughs> sure. Th- and thanks for having me. Very uh, happy to do it. And I, my last note is always, again, the CDC theme for prevention. So what I would say to your audience is, Remember that the the power you have and that the role that you play in addressing antibiotic resistance, this isn't something that the CDC just does or could do alone, that you uh, have the power to protect yourself and your family from AR infections. And so that's listening to your doctor about when to use antibiotics and when to not. It's about getting your, yourself and your family vaccinated against just about anything, since antibiotics are commonly used and commonly misprescribed for illness. But if you're vaccinated and it's prevented in the first place, then you don't need that antibiotic. It's about you know safe and appropriate food handling. It's about safe sex. It's about making sure that you're washing your hands and and practicing good hygiene. So remember that you have uh, a vital role to play and and you have uh, responsibilities of your own to protect yourself and your family. And there's a lot that you can do.
1: That's a great ending point there. But yeah, with that, thank you very
2: much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jenny.
0: Welcome back. Ava, what did you think about this interview? this was a terrific interview i i think it was Really nice to hear first such an eloquent speaker. I think Mr. Craig, he was great at getting his points across, but I also really enjoy that we finally, after so many episodes, 36 episodes, (laughs) we have been able to talk with someone that is so involved both on AMR in particular as a topic, but with the public health aspect of this issue. And it was clear throughout the interview that he is really passionate about this, that he really is the person at CDC that saw the need to bring all the talk about AMR that at at the beginning it was more, let's say, on the scientific area and more on the innovation and new antibiotics. And he saw, you know, because resistance is part of infections and infectious diseases is a really big part of public health. We should also work in this aspect. Right. So I, I think it's great that we were able to talk to someone bringing that light to to the issue and obviously i mean right now we are in a situation where we talk about public health agencies much more than we did before the beginning of 2020 right but public health agencies have been there for a really long time and it is clear with this interview and and the the experience that Michael had and what he talked about the people that are working in such a place as the CDC, that the work that they're doing, it's important beyond AMR, obviously. And it's a bit a paradigm, right? That what you guys were mentioning that if everything is working well, people are actually prevented to get health problems. The work of such an agency is completely kind of in the, in the back of people's minds. It's something that yeah. you don't think every day and it hasn't come until this COVID pandemic that we're actually thinking about okay what are these institutions doing right Mm.
1: no I agree personally it was just really fun to talk to a public health enthusiast like that I mean it's just fun as somebody who's interested in public health in that way I don't actually work with it either (laughs) so it it was a really enjoyable interview from that standpoint but like you said it's just it it's was a really good time to speak to somebody from a public health agency. And I think a lot of parallels can be drawn to other national agencies and other international like the ECDC, for example. I'm sure there are a lot of very enthusiastic people working behind the scenes all the time. And we tend maybe not to think about it so much Mm -hmm. because things are okay. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting time to kind of hear the struggles, too, because it's a hard time it's a time where a lot of discussion is happening about public health and what level, what measures should be taken and what's balanced and what's not balanced. And it it gets a bit controversial fast. So it was nice to really hear from the inside, but also about something other than COVID yeah. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and talking about AMR. Instead, it was uh, really enjoyable to hear more about that.
0: It wasn't it for you also perhaps a little bit, not surprising, but like like really come to the realization that the public aspect of AMR, it's kind of one of the last things to come into the table and to be discussed as a, a strategy or as a part that should be taken in account when managing antimicrobial resistance?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that kind of came hand in hand with, you know, more looking at... Um A strategy against antimicrobial resistance from like a stewardship standpoint that kind of comes more hand in hand with the public health aspect rather than like as as we were talking about before that innovation will solve everything. It's just a matter of getting a new antibiotic out there. Uh, And yeah, I mean it. It was surprising to hear you know how how new this all was. And for example, he mentioned this um the publication from the CDC, the first one under the Obama administration. I was thinking it was like that was not that long ago. <laughs> I was not that young when Obama got elected and it's like yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was pretty recent and it as somebody who's coming to the arena a bit later, it always surprises me when I'm like, oh, but that was the first one. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I put it into yeah. a little bit of context time-wise. Uh, it's also yeah. important to realize how how this whole action has been happening throughout mm. the decades now.
1: And to put a timeline on it. Mm-hmm, it's it's exactly. interesting to see.
0: I mean, I I was also kind of surprising that that fart they started relatively quite early. I think he mentioned about 2008 that it was kind of set up. And obviously before it was just people that kind of knew each other and wanted to learn from each other. And then it kind of grew bigger and bigger. And I assume as the problem of AMR also became more apparent and talked about then having that force set up and then being able to use it to get better at these kind of interventions and what to do and what does work and what doesn't really work, depending on which is the context. So it's important. So it it was nice that they had that from very early on. Um, Talking about resistance, there's one thing that was mentioned at some point in the interview, which I think maybe we can explain a little bit further. Michael mentioned that now Pathogens are getting better at developing resistance, and I understand what he means. But taking as a face value, it might sound sometimes that just like bugs now are smarter or better are developing resistance if there are antibiotics around, and it's not really just that. It's just that you know, as the consumption of antibiotics has increased over time, there is more possibilities for this uh, resistance to. Develop, but also as we have more resistances and we have horizontal transfer of these resistance, we have plasmids that can accumulate resistances. This is all mm. accumulative, you know, happening. And as we are going through more and more drugs and we are accumulating these resistances, it can ha- seem and happen that when you bring something new into the market, you very quickly find resistance in the clinical setting and it's not just because the bugs are kind of smarter and they are like more yeah. ready to be there and mutate and get resistance but it's just it's a consequence of the situation that we're living in and how we are using antibiotics so yeah
1: and to a certain degree i mean a lot of the antibiotics that have come out recently they're not new classes they're based on old classes which tends to mean that the resistance is kind of already out there and just needs to be for lack of a better word, updated. Exactly. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily that the bacteria are smarter per se, but they're kind of more prepared. <laughs>
0: yeah. And
1: then they get maybe exposed more. And then it, yeah, yeah it, so it goes on from there. It is
0: definitely the situation. Uh, we just thought it was good to mention particularly why this is the case. Yeah.
1: And I also kind of wanted to wrap things up a little bit from this interview. Just I was so happy to talk to somebody who is so focused on prevention. Mm-hmm. And, like, preventing uh, the disease from even occurring, but also, you know, vaccines, against specific things that might be AMR associated, decolonizing agents. And I, we've talked to someone before about antivirulence drugs. It was just really fun to, like, hear somebody talking so passionately about prevention rather than just, just, it's not a just, everything is good to work on. But it's still, like, I feel like this is an undervalued thing, and it was really fun to hear Mm -hmm. Someone's so passionate about it.
0: I mean, like he was mentioning, it's about diversifying the strategies, right? Yes, new antibiotics for 70 years has gotten us to where we are today. So we kind of have to think of alternative ways. And new antibiotics are extremely important, of course, but there are more things that we can actually do. Mm. So it was great to mention that part. And I also uh, appreciated a lot that you guys talked about the difficulties in actually bringing different kind of drugs into the market when it's about prevention you need to have this data that shows you that there is a benefit to the population Um. and in the preventive aspect of it and it's great to see that agencies like the cdc work hand in hand with the regulatory agencies to actually show them that these things might work can work you have to update the ways that you look into this so we can actually use them uh, in the population so Props to uh, Mr. Craig and you. It was a really, really fun interview, and I hope that everybody that listened to it also got uh, a little bit of inspiration from it.
1: But with that, I think we should move on to some some news we have that's a little bit more really AMR-related this time around. <laughs> Not just uh, antibiotics, but antimicrobials.
0: Great. Yeah, see you there. Welcome to the news for this March episode. We're going to start with something that we kind of have been wanted to talk about in the podcast for quite a while, which is the relationship between the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and its effect on antimicrobial, antibiotic use and potentially AMR. And we have today a paper just published (laughs) that really looks specifically at this. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about the paper? Yeah,
1: so it's called The Global Consumption of Antimicrobials, Impact of the WHO Global Action Plan on Antimicrobial Resistance and the 2019 Coronavirus Pandemic, COVID-19. It was published on February 18th in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy, and it's open access, so anyone wants to see some more, you're welcome to it. So in general, what this paper is doing, they're looking at the purchases of antimicrobials. So they actually looked at antibiotics, so and targeting bacteria, antivirals and antifungals, which is a really nice you know, full section, especially in a viral pandemic. It was really useful to have all this information. Comparing data sets of purchasing from before the pandemic and after the pandemic, so really like the same time of year trying to compare how much was purchased. And they're looking at data sets from 66 countries into geographical areas. So it covers, I think they said over 70% of the world population lives in this area. So we're covering a large portion of the the globe, at least. As we were talking about this, Ava, you and I re- were thinking that, you know, some of this is feels somewhat like confirmatory. It, it, it was expected, but it's really nice to see. So in general, what they saw was that there was an increase in purchasing of antimicrobials, especially antivirals and antibiotics in like the very beginning of the pandemic. So what they really looked at was March 2020 compared to March 2019. And this does not fit with what has been we've seen previous years. We were generally seeing a decrease in purchasing, of especially antibiotics. That could be seen as concerning, but that's maybe to be expected in a pandemic. <laughs> But then the really interesting thing was from April 2020 to August 2020, while there was definitely a growing number of cases around the world of COVID-19, there was actually a decrease, again, of the antimicrobial purchasing for all of them, including the antivirals as well, to below the level from before the pandemic and continuing to decrease. Mm -hmm. So this is really nice data to have, really nice to see. And they're tying this together with global action plans in these different countries. The countries with global action plans kind of have something set It's worth noting that they don't include all uh, data in this. So they removed antivirals and antibiotics that are used for chronic case treatments like tuberculosis treatments, uh, HIV treatments, that sort of thing, to kind of remove that skew from here. They also aren't including things that are um, emergency authorization use. So, for example, remdesivir that was used in the early days of the pandemic is not included here, but that's also kind of, in my personal opinion, not the most important thing to look at here. You're looking at things that maybe don't have a large effect that aren't seen to be useful for COVID, that they're being decreased, especially as they saw that there wasn't a large number of bacterial uh, co-infections and whatnot, that these drugs aren't helping. Mm -hmm. Let's not use them (laughs) more than we needed to. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I also like that the paper brings up a point that we sometimes a little bit forget when we talk about AMR, since a lot of the mainstream talk is about antibiotics, and is mm-hmm. that they have seen an increase, a steady increase of the consumption of antivirals throughout the years that they were looking in this study. And they bring up to our attention, you know, that this is something that we cannot forget, that, you know, microbes yeah. can also uh, accumulate resistance to antiviral drugs and we cannot just start using them the same way we've been using antibiotics for many years, because we might end up also with an issue of an accumulation of resistance worldwide in these microbes. Mm. So I think it's really nice that they just didn't look at antibiotics because when we were talking, yeah. you and I at the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of the talk was like, Oh, are, are we prescribing more antibiotics? There was a lot of the talk about how this affects antibiotic consumption. And this is going to affect Uh, accumulation of resistance. Obviously, that's Mm. the end goal with these kind of uh, investigations. But looking into antifungals and antivirals also, I think is a really great point that this paper brings to the table. And it's worth also mentioning,
1: they bring up the the potential, the downside that they're looking at purchasing, that that doesn't necessarily mean that all these drugs were used. There might've been a bit of stockpiling happening. And of course, we were looking at, you know, supply chain issues and everything already then. But they do also... You know, they consider also you know returned, if I remember right, returned medicines, and they mention also you know nations might have already had stockpiles that they're going into. But for example, I mean, azithromycin was considered to be useful in the beginning and kind of given to everybody, so it's not surprising that there was an increase. Another note that they have is that, you know, maybe some of the decrease in infections is also due to some of the measures taken Mm -hmm. to prevent infections. So maybe people got less sick, maybe.
0: I was going to bring that out. You know, this paper doesn't really dwell on trying to figure out why the trends happen like they happen. You know, they're just giving you the data. This is what we found. But I I personally think that, you know, there was an steep decrease, then there was an increase because of the circumstances. And then Mm. after the beginning of the pandemic, and we're talking actually from April till August 2020, these are the data points that they are looking at, there was an even bigger decrease on antibiotic and antimicrobial consumption. And this is because with everybody being, you know, have quarantine at home, the reduction in being with other people, you will prevent by default other transmission, not just COVID transmission, which will result in less people getting sick and which which result in less prescription, either for things that you need or things that you maybe will need. But, you know, no one is getting sick. You are not giving them these medicines. So I think it really makes sense, the data that we are seeing right now. And I'm very happy that it's actually right now out there.
1: But it's a good data to have, I think, especially when countries are looking at national action plans for antibiotics. You have to kind of consider that there will be health crises, Mm -hmm. uh, be them pandemics or wars or whatever. But I mean, it's not all going to be smooth sailing and you maybe need to also plan for the harder times. So I think it's uh, definitely useful information to have and it's relatively comforting to see that it wasn't so bad Mm -hmm. in hindsight, didn't appear to be so bad. Uh, Things seem to be okay. That's nice. I I think this
0: paper (laughs) together with the... Recent Lancet paper, also looking at the global AMR, I think these two go kind of well together to be updated on both AMR impact, but also how much are we using of these drugs. So I'm going to be positive here. I'm going to say we're on the right track.
1: <laughs> yeah, we weren't derailed, at least. Exactly. I mean, that's, it's, it sounds stupid, but that's nice to hear that like a very massive global pandemic didn't derail the effort. Mm-hmm. But on that note, we'd like to stay with AMR. Looking at a actually a parasite rather than what we usually look at, which is often bacteria. Mm -hmm. So, Eva, could you tell us a little bit about this paper?
0: Yes, I'm very actually very proud to be presenting this paper uh, (laughs) today because it's actually a paper published by one of our PhD students at the center, Sasha Krakopka, who is about to finish quite soon his PhD. So, he's been working very actively throughout his PhD on uh, using an organism that we normally are not very used to when we talk to AMR, which is a protozoa, Giardia intestinalis. Mm -hmm. He's working with Giardia intestinalis. And he just published this paper titled Characterization of Metronidazole-Resistant Giardia intestinalis Lines by Comparative Transcriptomics and Proteomics. And it was published in Frontiers in Microbiology this past 10th of February of this year. And as I was telling you, Jenny, before, I really like this article, even though it's long and it has a lot of very specific details, obviously, it's a research paper, but on the surface and what it brings to the table is extremely interesting. So first, let's talk a little bit about metronidazole, right? The first thing we find in the title, characterization of metronidazole-resistant Yardia. So metronidazole is a very interesting drug because it's a drug that has been used for a very long time, decades, in the clinics, and it's been used to treat a very different array of uh, infectious diseases both from bacteria and from parasites and protozoa. The cool thing about metronidazole is that even though it has uh, it has been used for a really long time, we don't really find a lot of resistance in the clinical strains on the clinical setting. Uh, metronidazole has been uh, very widely used because it's cheap, it's in many places very easy to get, and it also has this broad spectrum that we were mentioning that if someone is sick, you don't really know what they're sick with, you will give metronidazole and they will get cure especially for intestinal diseases like diarrhea um, and things like that gastrointestinal gastrointestinal diseases yeah but lately like with everything we've been seeing an accumulation of resistance also to this metronidazole so over the past decades or the the time that we've been using metronidazole it is not really well known first how it works And by default, also how resistance actually happens to to this drug. The resistance in particular is quite interesting because it seems to be a resistance that is transient. So it happens, you can get Mm -hmm. resistant to it, but then it kind of reverts and it goes away. And the same kind of population is not resistant anymore. So it's a little bit of a dynamic situation, which makes things much more difficult to study in particular.
1: And uh, I think it's also especially the case in this uh, host. Giardia has multiple chromosomes, if I don't remember incorrectly. <laughs> yes, exactly. and it's, it's a very complicated organism to work with, but it's also like a very complicated system to, to study here mm-hmm. as to how the resistance is occurring, what it's occurring, like why, and I mean...
0: You are completely correct there. It's uh, very complicated. So what they basically the, the standpoint of this paper is like we know it happened. It doesn't find in the clinic so much. It seems to be transient. So it's not so much based on the genome changes like what happens with a lot of bacterial resistance that we study. So they decided, OK, let's study this. Let's try to find why Giardia intestinalis, can become resistant to metronidazole. And by using both lab strains that have become resistant, lab strains that have been also reverted to being sensitive, and also using meta-analysis of data already published, then maybe we can come to a consensus or at least an idea of how this drug works in the cell and how a cell can become resistant to it. So what they did was to analyze both the cost of this resistance to Giardia to intestinalis. So what does it happen when this bacteria is actually resistant to metronidazole? And they also, by looking at the transcriptome and the proteome, see if they can find any clues as how this resistance is actually happening. And by proxy telling you how this drug is actually working in the cell, which is really cool. I really love this kind of studies. Yeah. What they found is that There is a high fitness cost that is multifactorial, so it affects both the growth of the parasite but also some other parts of the cycle of life of this parasite, because it goes through a complex cycle of life. It's not just like a bacteria that divides, grows, and then divides again. This one goes through an incestation period. And then what they see is that they are both slower growers, but they also have a disturbed incestation period. And all this is going to make them to be less competitive. So they propose that this is why we cannot find this so often in the clinics, because if um GRDS strain is resistant, it's going to be outcompeted by non-resistant strains at some point. And yeah, then wh- especially
1: because the encystation stage seems to be the really infectious one, if I understood right. <laughs> so it it's not likely to be as infectious exactly. if it's resistant.
0: And then looking at the transcriptome, which is basically all the RNA that is in the cell, which from the RNA, you then are going to make the proteins as well. So looking at the transcriptome and the proteome, what they come to conclude is that mechanistically there's also a very multifactorial set of resistance possibilities or changes to the cell that will make them less sensitive to metronidazole treatment. What they see is that there are a core of functions that are affected. By looking at this set of data, they can see several things within the cell, of how the cell works, that are affected in these resistant strains. And these have to do with the outer membrane. So probably this is how the drug comes into the cell reduced drug activation because metronidazole doesn't come into the cell as a drug that is readily active to do its job. It has to be converted from a pro-drug into a drug. So they see that there is a reduced drug activation. There is an increased oxygen content because they also know or at least they assume that the way that this drug works is that it has a radical that is very oxygen sensitive. So if you increase the amount of oxygen that there is in the cell, then it cannot be as active to do the job that it has to do. They also see that there is an up regulation on oxygen stress response which would be related to the same thing we talked before and at the activation of the metronidazole radical so there are things in the cell that can kind of get activated to kind of push away that radical from the metronidazole that would be what would in the end make the cell not survive so with all this data they which is a lot i mean if you read the paper there is yeah. a lot that they've been doing what they actually are able to to know or to suggest and and propose to the scientific community, it's a model of how metronidazole actually works in the cell. Using Giardia as a model organism, but a lot of things probably are translatable to other organisms as well. So metronidazole comes into the cell, it gets modified from prodrug to drug. The drug has a radical that can damage the DNA, and that's basically really ultimately what it's not good for the cell to continue surviving and then the ways that you can have resistance is by getting less in getting less drug in not being able to activate the drug into the active form or once it's active have ways to make it less active obviously and all these things kind of I get the feeling that they work uh, together and at the same time which I think is also a reason why we don't see so much resistance accumulating because it's all like kind of multi-target, and then the the cell will have to have a lot of changes at once to have a stable and genomic transmittable resistance, which is what we've been seeing Mm. in in bacteria for other drugs, right?
1: Yeah, this is a lot that has to work together, and it just kind of adds to time together. It's it's, um, probably not very likely to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it can, but it's the kind of thing of like, it's what makes this a good drug in a sense. There are other antibiotics that we have that are similar to this. We don't really know how they work. But there's something about it that's complicated, and that's always a good thing, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if it takes a lot to knock it down. I think this is a very interesting paper and in that they really, I mean, you have this struggle of, like, okay, Giardia is kind of hard to work with. So we're going to use this information that we can get, which is very useful. So the like, the transcriptomics and the proteomics can give them so much information looking at you comparing uh, what levels of RNA and proteins are the, to, like, the parental or the the resistant strains and comparing across so many lines. And I do think we need to kind of clarify transcriptomics a little bit, Mm -hmm. maybe, uh, because that can be a little, like most people can understand like, okay, there's proteins, yes or no, how much compare, like Mm -hmm. that, that maybe makes a little more sense. Transcriptomics is looking at, like we said, the RNA, which is basically, you know, the DNA is coded as many times as it's coded on a genome, but how many times it kind of gets signaled to become a protein can change. It, it's called like the expression of that gene. So we're not just looking at, okay, how many times is that coded, but how much of this protein is kind of signaled to be produced. Mm-hmm. So then you're looking at the the transcriptomics. And then the proteomics should kind of fit with it, but it doesn't always. It's There's many steps to this mm-hmm. process that you know, the level of protein should correlate. So this is a, I think it's a very smart approach. Mm-hmm. It's a very, in-depth approach, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think it it gives them a lot of information. Like I said, it's hard to work with some. It's hard to work with this host. It's hard to work with a drug that you don't really know how it's working. And I think they get a lot of useful information out of this. Mm-hmm,
0: definitely. I mean, I remember when uh, Sasha started working, we will call it the Omics project. That's why he was working yeah. on the Omics project, and it's very nice to see how this has become, you know, a complete study. And I think it's going to be very useful for people working with metronidazole treatment either in the or other it, there's kind of establishing there a model of how this works and i find it incredibly mm-hmm. interesting to figure out this puzzle and especially this seems to be very intricate puzzle <laughs> yeah yeah so congratulations sasha for this very great yeah. paper and uh, yeah he will be defending in may or june early june Ooh. i believe so we're going to see more of these things coming out. Exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. With that, I think we should say goodbye for this month mm-hmm. and hope to see you next month. We have some exciting things lined up for this this spring. So uh, hope to see you back here soon.
0: Yeah, great. See you soon. For more information about the Ypsil Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang.
1: And a big thank you to Henrik Nies for letting us use his song Sound the Alarm.